Father, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you that it is living and active. We ask that you give us uh, understanding now that you'd speak to our hearts by your spirit as we read your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I feel like I should apologise for stopping uh, the, the Bible reading kind of partway through the story. It's a gripping read, isn't it? And you, and you, you want to keep going and if you've read it before, you want to be reminded of what happens and if you haven't read it, you, you sort of, yeah, gee, what's going to happen? We leave them uh, in the inner, the inner cell fastened with their feet in stocks. Uh, come back next week and we'll have the, uh, we'll have the rest of the, uh, the story. We're, we're moving slowly through these chapters of Acts, uh, but we're thinking deeply or at least I hope that we're thinking deeply. Maybe you hear that account of, of, of this, you know, slave girl's exorcism of this uh, fortune-telling spirit and, and followed by an angry mob who beat up on uh, Paul and Silas. And, and you think, oh, interesting story. I uh, can't really relate to it. Uh, if that's your knee-jerk response, I want you to stop and uh, to think again because we may not be walking in Paul's shoes in first century uh, Philippi, but actually nothing much has changed in this world. Our world is not all that different from the world that Paul and Silas uh, walked in. And this part of God's word actually lights up our path as we walk as disciples of Jesus, as we, like Paul, seek to follow Jesus and live uh, his way. So uh, I want us to look at this passage and I want to highlight three things from this part of God's word that it tells us about this world, both first century Philippi and 21st century Australia. Uh, Three things from the passage and then four implications. That's where we're going. The first one is that this world is spiritual. But before we get to that, just to to recap, get our bearings, Uh, this is Paul's second missionary journey. You'll see a map um, up here on the screen. They were heading for Macedonia. God had uh, directed them to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. And last week they made a start at uh, Philippi and um, they went to a place of prayer at the river outside the city gates and they spoke to uh, a, uh, some women there and one woman named Lydia, drop this down a bit, uh, one woman named Lydia became a, um, a believer in, in the, the Lord, and the Lord opened her heart to receive and respond to the message of the gospel. And she, she became a believer, she welcomed Paul and welcomed his companions to her house. So that's where we're up to. And uh, so this morning we're, we're at point one on the outline. The first thing that this tells us about our world is that it's spiritual, and we pick it up at 16, verse 16, where we read that Paul and Silas continued to go to this place of prayer. It was a strategic place to go to meet people who were interested in God. That was their habit, and they continued to go there. And on one of those visits, it says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So here this, this slave uh, had this spirit that, it, that enabled her to predict the future. And you might think, well, that's a bit weird, and it is a bit uh, it is a bit weird. You don't see that every day. And, and maybe we're a bit sceptical of, of this sort of thing of fortune telling and star signs and, and palm readings. And, uh, we, you know, in our sophisticated Western scientific rational day and age, we think, well, that's, you know, that, that's all a bit of hocus pocus nonsense. It's probably, um, probably some sort of scam for the gullible. Well, if they were just playing, uh, playing on the gullible, it was certainly working for them because this fortune telling slave, it says, earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She was doing something 
right. And that's the thing with fortune telling, unless it's, it's completely sort of vague and, and general, so much so that it kind of fits with any future outcome and maybe sometimes the astrology columns kind of fall into that category. But unless it's completely vague and general, you soon work out whether or not they can actually predict the future. If you just wait for a bit, well, you, you catch up with the future and you can see whether what was said is true. Uh, it seems that this, this slave girl had the, the goods, or should I say the bads, because I don't think this spirit was good. But this spirit was real. And it would be naive and arrogant of us to, to say, well, that's a bit weird, and so therefore it mustn't be true. Now, we may not be particularly aware of, uh, of the spiritual realm uh, or, of, uh, or see things like this every day, but that doesn't mean that the spiritual realm doesn't exist or that there aren't spirits like this. I think it's interesting that in Australia, despite our, our Western scientific rationalism, uh, even in Australia, even though church going has, uh, has dropped and uh, the majority of Australians, uh, perhaps they don't attend church, still many, in fact the majority of Australians do, have some sort of awareness of or connection with spirituality. Uh, here's some statistics. Six out of ten Australians identify with one of the Christian churches. Uh, nearly four out of ten Australians say that religious faith is important in shaping life's decisions. And almost half of Australians agree that there is something beyond this life that makes sense of it all, with another third who are just undecided about that. So even though many Australians have, have cut themselves off from Christianity, there is still an awareness of spiritual matters. That aside, irrespective of whether or not we are aware or what people may think, uh, the Bible's teaching on this matter is clear. There is a spiritual realm with good and with evil spirits. And, and that's obvious when you read through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus encountered and, and defeated demons and evil spirits. There, there is a spiritual realm. Uh, but the Bible teaches more than just that, that there is a spiritual realm. It's not like we're in this kind of neutral position where we can be swayed this way or, or that way. The Bible teaches that left to ourselves, we are actually subject to the evil one. I mentioned this passage last week, Ephesians chapter 2. It'll come up on the screen. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This says that we followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's talking about Satan, the spirit who is, is at work in those who are disobedient. Or 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Bible is clear that by nature, we are dead in sin, following Satan, blinded from seeing the truth. There is a spiritual realm and it's not good. So if that's the case, what the Bible clearly teaches, why don't we see more of this in, a, in kind of obvious ways like this slave girl? I mean, if we're by nature following the evil one, why aren't his influences more obvious? Well, Satan's power is in deception. 
Jesus says of him in John 8.44, he is a liar and the father of lies. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, it says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan's power is in deception. And perhaps one of the greatest deceptions in 21st century Australian culture, one that successfully leads people away from God, is having them believe either that there is no spiritual realms, there's, there's no devil and there's no God, so just live however you like. Or if there is a spiritual realm, well, it's, it's up to you what you do with it. It's, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. It's a spiritual smorgasbord. So the evil one doesn't have to be as, as obvious as possessing people with evil spirits as he did here. He can hide and masquerade himself and successfully lead people away from the true and living God. So this world is spiritual. Notice what this spirit did, verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. That would be disturbing enough. And having someone following you around shouting, it kind of reminds me of um, parenting toddlers. <laughs> following them around shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, in, in saying this, she's, she's on the money. She's speaking the truth. Yeah, that's who they are. Yes, that's what they're doing. Why? Why does she do this? Well, perhaps the spirit uh, can't, but can't but help speak the truth. You know, they, they're going to tell you how to be saved. Or maybe the evil one is, is actually seeking to undermine their mission by endorsing them and you know, lead to people saying, well, you know, don't, uh, don't listen to Paul. He's with that, he's with that demon-possessed girl. Whatever the case, Paul put up with it for a while, but as verse 18 says, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And this is the significant point. Yes, the world is spiritual. There is a spiritual realm, but Jesus Christ is Lord over it. He's Lord over it all. He is in charge. Notice Paul simply says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the spirit at once left her. This spiritual conflict, it's not like a kind of arm wrestle between two evenly matched opponents and you're not sure which one's going to win. No, Jesus has, has complete and ultimate authority. As Colossians 2 verse 15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Yes, there is a spiritual realm. There are spiritual forces. Yes, they are hostile to God's people. The evil one is, is actually described in 1 Peter 5 as being like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our opposition is real, but Jesus is really more powerful. As James 4 verse 7 says, we are therefore to submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we need to recognise the authority of Jesus. So on the one hand, um, some people swallow the lie that well, the devil's not real and, and neither is God, so live to please yourself. Some people swallow that lie. 
But on the other hand, some believe the lie that, well, the devil is real and he really might get you and take you down. So, yeah, you need to come to, to, to do this. You need to do that. You need to come to this prayer meeting. You need to go to that conference. You need to, be, to do these things and be really careful because if you're not, well, the devil will devour you. And that, that way of thinking can actually end up buying into a lie that says, well, Jesus is actually not all that powerful. And it actually hands the evil one power over us that he, he has no right to have because Jesus is Lord. So this world is spiritual, but Jesus is Lord. That's the first point. Point two, this world is money-driven. And I suspect I won't have to work um, so hard to persuade you of this point. We kind of know this, don't we? But uh, notice what happened when Paul ordered the Spirit to depart, verse 19. It says, when her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So not only had the the spirit departed, but their hope of making lots of money departed with it. In fact, in the original language, the the same word is used. The spirit departed and then their hope of making money departed. The the one went with the other. Notice the response of the the owners of the slave girl. they say, oh, well, that's nice. Now she's free to follow Jesus. Isn't that good? And I guess, you know, we should go and get a job that does something useful and, and doesn't exploit people. <laughs> no, they don't say that. So the fact that Jesus is Lord has seriously got in the way of their money-making schemes. And they are furious. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. And it's clear which of these these slave owners are serving, that they're worshipping money. And Paul, by, by sending away the spirit, he has, he's toppled their idol. And they're not happy about it. How often is this true in our day and age? Uh, there's a saying that the, uh, the last part of a person to be converted is, is their wallet. And... Uh, our attitude to money, what we, we do with money, it, re, it does really reveal who or what is our God. If our aim in life really is to, to earn as much money as we can so that we can enjoy the good things that money can buy, that's our aim in life. Well, we're, we're living for money. We're worshipping money. Money is our God. If our hope for the future if that's all tied up in, in how much money we have or we will have, if we're trusting and relying on money to deliver us, then money is our God. If we think that the thing that will give us meaning and significance and status is how much money we have and how much money we earn, then we're putting in God's place money. Because God is the one that gives us meaning and significance and status. How common this is in our culture. Is this you? It's certainly the people who live, live around you who, who don't know the true and living God. And this worship of money, it creeps into our hearts. It creeps into our minds. It's kind of the air that we breathe in this culture. How do we know if we're worshipping money? Well, out of love for you, let me, uh, let me help you check your heart as I check my own. 
by measuring ourselves against these slave owners? How do you respond when the reality that Jesus is Lord, when that impacts you financially? When the call to follow Jesus hits you in the pocket? Do you think, that's fantastic. I can use my money to serve Jesus. I can use it in the way that he wants me to use it, to provide for myself and my family and others like he wants me to. Uh, to provide for my church, to, to be generous to those in need like he wants me to. Oh, I can use my money to support world mission and to invest in God's eternal kingdom like he wants me to. Do you rejoice in using your money to follow Jesus? Or when the fact that Jesus is Lord and the call to follow him, when that impacts you financially, perhaps even challenges you, do you resist? You figuratively speaking, round up an angry mob and saying, "No, no, no! You, you don't, you don't topple over my idol. Don't you touch my God." Now I know that talking about money is tricky. It's it's always tricky. Uh, part of that is because different people are in different situations within this room. There there are some who are, str- are struggling to make ends meet, and others who are who are living in plenty. And perhaps if we if we better reflected the early church. There'd be, there'd be less of that as we, as we shared with, with each other and allowed each other to do that. But the key thing here is, is actually not how much money we have or don't have. The key thing is our attitude to money and how we use what we have. Are we driven by money and the desire for more? Is it our God? Is it in the, the driving seat of our life? Or do we know and believe that Jesus is Lord and so use our money in our service of him as we seek to be faithful, as we seek to be generous with what we have? This world is money-driven, but Jesus is Lord. Thirdly, our world is hostile. Uh, the, The slave owners here, they, they dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates. They accused them, verse 20, It says they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I think this accusation is probably well calculated. They know they're in a Roman colony. To be anti-Roman is is a serious offence. And maybe Paul, as he was speaking of of Jesus as the Christ, the, the king and them as the servants of the Most High God, perhaps that was seen as as being traitorous or blasphemous to to King Caesar, who was regarded as divine. And that was, in fact, one of the charges that the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of uh, as, as he was before the Roman governor Pilate. They said, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. That's in John 19, 12. So there's this real parallel going on here. As with Jesus... So now here with Paul and Silas, they find themselves then under attack from the the crowd. Verse 22 continues, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This world is hostile Hostile to Jesus and his followers. 
And as horrible as, as this would have been for Paul and Silas, I'm sure it wouldn't have been unexpected. Jesus had taught his disciples in Matthew 5.11. We saw a couple of weeks ago at our weekend away. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus prepared his disciples. Before his death, he said in John 15.18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, uh, me, they will also they will persecute you also. And uh, specifically for Paul, when he was converted, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Notice, I will show him how much he must suffer. For my name. It wasn't unexpected. The world is hostile. It's hostile to Jesus. It's hostile to his followers. And we shouldn't think that this is kind of somehow limited to the first century in the early church. God's word tells us plainly, 2 Timothy 3.12, that we should expect opposition. In fact, it says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, it's remarkable that... Um, as horrendous as it would have been for Paul and Silas to be, to be stripped, to be beaten with rods, to be severely flogged, it's remarkable that in one sense it didn't rock them. Now you can see that if you read on, next verse. I'll let you have this little bit of the next bit. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, their bodies are beaten but their faith is intact and, and they're praying, they're singing, they're being witnesses to the other prisoners as they lie in the inner cell with their feet in the stocks. How can they do that? Well, it's because they know that Jesus is Lord. They know that, that this world and its opposition is passing and they're looking to eternity. Uh, later on, Paul says in, in his second letter to uh, the church at Corinth, he says, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles. That's how he describes it. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Yes, we live in a world that's hostile, but Jesus is Lord. And that's true for us. As we stand and uh, stand up and are willing to, to speak of Jesus, we will face opposition from some. It may not be uh, as physically violent as, as this, though in some parts of the world this is what Christians face, but it's real. The, the snide comment at work or at school the disapproval, the exclusion, the rejection, the slander. It's real. But as we face that opposition, we can do that knowing that it's temporary, that Jesus is Lord both now and forever. So our world, like the world that uh, Paul ministered to in Philippi, it's spiritual, it's money-driven, it's hostile. But into that world, God declares his gospel. He says, Jesus is Lord. 
How do we respond? Well, I've got four implications for us to conclude. Firstly, acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Paul had a message for for the world of his time. It's the same message that we need to hear today. Jesus is Lord. God has appointed his son to rule over this world, over all spiritual powers and authorities, and to rule over our lives. Not as some kind of mean dictator, but as a loving, perfect leader and saviour. And in following him and submitting to him as Lord, that is where freedom is found. We can choose to ignore his rule for a time, but in the end, when we die or when he returns, they will catch up with us. The call of the gospel is to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, to receive him willingly as our Lord, to come before him in prayer, to confess our sin, our brokenness, our failure to acknowledge him as Lord, to to ask for his forgiveness, which in his love for us he, he is ready and willing to give, to ask him to be Lord of our life, to say, you call the shots, you direct how I live. That's the first implication, our our heart's response to Jesus as Lord. That's the foundation. Uh, Secondly, reject false spirituality. There is a spiritual realm and there are spiritual powers, including evil ones, ones who who want to take you away from Jesus, from trusting and and following him. And, And so we should have nothing to do with it and have nothing to do with things like Ouija boards and tarot cards and fortune telling. And and you may think, well, there's there's nothing to it. It's just a bit of harmless fun. But in thinking that, are you just playing into Satan's hand, into his deception? I mean, what would you do? How would you respond if, if it appears that, well, there is actually something to this? Will you start to believe it and follow it and trust it and actually be led away from trusting Jesus as Lord? Reject false spirituality. Now, I suspect that um, you're probably unlikely to to use fortune-telling and the like. But what about superstition and karma? Are you superstitious? Do you believe in karma? If you're not sure what karma is, it's a, it's a Buddhist belief that whatever you do comes back to you. If you do something good, something good will happen to you and vice versa. And, and for many people, superstition and, and karma kind of govern their lives. This doesn't fit with a Christian understanding that Jesus is Lord. The Lord over this world is, is not some sort of vague, impersonal, universal, tit-for-tat governing principle called karma. The Lord over this world is Jesus. And we can trust him as Lord and as Saviour. So acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Secondly, reject false spirituality. Third implication is to allow Jesus to be Lord of your wallet and your bank account and your mortgage and your investment property and your retirement fund. There is a false Christianity around that that latches on to Jesus as Saviour but denies him as Lord. It says, yeah, I'd like to have Jesus in my corner, helping me along in life, forgiving me my sin, helping me out, affirming me, believing in me, inspiring me, kind of like an ultimate life coach. Yeah, Jesus is my saviour. It's false Christianity. Because Christianity, 
Christianity is about Christ, not about me. And Christ, the word Christ, means king. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in charge. If you are a Christian, then Christ is your king. So let me ask you, is he in charge of your wallet? Now, please don't mishear me as, um, as saying, are you giving lots of money to church? I think as soon as the church starts talking about money, that's kind of the assumption that that's what is being said. That may be one outworking of Jesus being Lord over your wallet, but that's not my point. That's not what I'm... I'm interested in, in who your God is. If Jesus is Lord then we must let his priorities determine our priorities, including our financial priorities. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of our wallets? What, is, what does he want us to do with our money? Here's a very quick snapshot. There's a whole sermon in this, but some references will come up on the screen. Jesus wants us to provide for our own daily needs as we're able. He wants us to share with those in need. He wants us to provide for the needs of our wider family. Uh, He wants us to provide for the needs of our church. He wants us to be generous to Christ's mission further afield. There's just a a summary snapshot of Jesus' priorities for our wallets. And maybe there might be more you want to add to that. There's some homework. Go home and look at the Bible and say, well, what does Jesus want me to do with my money? That's just a a summary snapshot. If he is, in fact, our Lord then let's joyfully and willingly allow him to be Lord of our wallets and our mortgages and our bank accounts and investment properties and retirement funds. Fourthly, lastly, briefly, implication, if if you're facing opposition, take heart. If you're being ridiculed and excluded and rejected because you follow Jesus, hang in there. You're in good company. You're in the company of the Apostle Paul and Silas and of the Lord Jesus himself. And remember that Jesus is Lord, even over a hostile world. He is with you now by his spirit and he will one day bring justice and will set all things straight. So keep trusting him and keep living for him. Let's pray and ask God to help us in doing all of this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for Jesus I thank you that he is Lord over all and that by the cross he has triumphed over all spiritual powers and authorities. Father, please shape us and move us, change us to live our lives with Jesus as Lord over all. Father, forgive us our sin. Forgive us our foolishness, our greed. Soften our hearts, we pray, Father, that we would live for Jesus And do that even in the face of opposition. Please keep us trusting him and living for him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.